0: Tonight, the new Australian gold rush and the toll it's taking on our landscape. How farms and wild places are being sacrificed in the scramble for renewable energy. I'll be bringing you a special report from Gundry Plains near Goulburn, which could soon disappear under a sea of solar panels. You're watching Battleground on ADH TV, streaming every week on Thursdays at 8pm Australian Eastern Time or available on demand 24 hours a day at adh.tv or via the ADH TV app, which you can download on your smartphone or smart TV. Also tonight, the aspiration drought. Why smart, educated Australians are losing hope and what can be done to restore the Australian dream. We'll be broadcasting an absorbing discussion between Gen Z conservative Freya Leach and former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson, recorded in front of a live audience at an event hosted by the Menzies Research Centre. First to an extraordinary exhibition of climate alarmism from a man who should know better. In a speech delivered recently in Perth, Andrew Forrest is the chairman of Australia's third largest mining company, Fortescue Metals. The minerals his company exports offshore are responsible for 250 million tonnes of carbon emissions every year. That's equivalent to Australia's entire domestic carbon emissions. For six months. Yet Forrest has lately become a climate activist, obsessed with what he calls lethal humidity. Apparently, we're all
1: about to die. We're now seeing record temperatures all over the world. The Antarctic is collapsing as a result. It's coming. Are you safe in a city? Hell no. If the air conditioning fails, you're toast. If you're young, you work outdoors. Are you right? Air cool in COVID? No, you're not right. In fact, you're at extreme risk. Why? It's called lethal humidity. Known for the organism of the human, translated into a thermometer, translate that across a, a very urbanised environment, air conditioning failing, millions of people will die. That's because the temperature is risen to a point that humidity, which is what's going to kill you, is now going through the roof. So I'm not kidding about any of this. This is d- proper, referenced science. At just 35 degrees Celsius with high humidity, death within six hours. Lethal humidity is already here. Please look at the screen. It's already here. Unless we can put the handbrake on it over the next 10 years, it's going to live with us forever. There's no cure. The only cure is stopping global warming. You're now on the edge. This is the beginning of the end. Proteins in your blood start to unravel. They start to unfold. Think of it as an egg. They unravel. They don't come back. You cannot uncook an egg.
0: Think of it as an egg. You cannot uncook an egg. Lethal humidity. That's Andrew Forrest. Andrew Forrest, the Andrew Forrest, the chair of Australia's fourth largest publicly listed company. Forrest isn't so much greenwashing his company as drowning it. He's betting the company's future on green hydrogen, which he calls the miracle molecule, the Swiss army knife of energy and green products. Here's Forrest addressing the National
1: Press Club last year. And to make green hydrogen, you simply split water, any old water, it can be wastewater, Desalinated water, seawater into hydrogen and oxygen using renewable electricity only. It's like a miracle molecule.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you simply split water to make green hydrogen. Apparently, it's as easy as that. What Forrest neglected to tell the press club is that you, to split the water, you need grid shattering amounts of power. You need roughly 50 terawatt hours of electricity to produce a megaton of green hydrogen. So we can safely say that Fortescue's goal of manufacturing 15 megatons by 2030 is as fanciful as this scare stories about lethal humidity. A target of 15 megatons by 2030 is so far off the dial that it makes the government's target of 82% green electricity look puny. Anyway, let's suspend disbelief just for a moment and let's assume that Labor does reach its target, which is to produce 180 terawatts of electricity a year from renewables by 2030. 180 terawatts. Forrest could gobble a lot of it to create his green hydrogen and you still fall 570 terawatts short of what he needs. Fortescue Industries uh, New South Wales manager Joshua Moran set out the scale of the challenge at a conference in May last year. Fortescue will need to deliver 20 gigawatts of electrolyzers a year by 2029. That's almost 20 times more than the current global output. It's going to have to install 20 turbine blades every day. Each 80 metres long, it must install 31 million solar modules a year. Well, it's a measure of the strength of the prevailing vision amongst the corporate elite than journalists that so few have criticised Forrest's monomanical obsession with this unproven, unscaled and untested miracle molecule of green hydrogen. The, incrit- the uncritical woke press succumbed to groupthink, hailing it as a good thing that the two billion dollar government subsidy for the research of green energy and hydrogen was announced in this year's budget. Well, Forrest, whose company stands to pocket a substantial chunk of that subsidy, was somewhat ungrateful. He called it just two billion dollars was kicking the can down the road, suggesting he'd be putting his hand out for more. Well, there's something very wrong when the unproven theories of one man can drive the strategy of a company as large as Fortescue. Good businesses do not rely on the vision of one person, but use the combined resources of a team, each operating within their professional field of competence. A chairman's role is to temper the excessive zeal of executives. A Fortescue, apparently, is the other way round. Labour's dream of turning Australia into a green energy export hub rests on a delusion, a delusion that Australia's supply of renewable energy is inexhaustible. It is not the supply of wind, solar and hydropower is constrained by a scarcity of land. It needs a lot of land because the energy sources it relies upon are extremely dilute. So when Bowen promises to increase the amount of renewable energy generation in Australia by 200% by 2030, he's also increasing the amount of rural land that will be industrialised by 200%. This week I visited the Gundry Plains just south of Goulburn the target of a land grab by a foreign energy company, BP. Here's my special report. The Gundry Plains on the southern edge of Goulburn is the next frontier for an industrial revolution that's transforming the Australian countryside. If the global energy corporation BP gets its way, This rich, productive pasture will be turned into a sea of black silicon and glass. The company plans to install 740,000 Chinese-made rotating solar panels, each five metres high, across 7,000 hectares. That's an area roughly the size of the Melbourne CBD. Life for the 60 families who live on the perimeter will never be the same again.
2: Well, we're down the end of our property now and uh, you'll see the fence line there. There's a white tank. It's only two metres high. The panels are going to be five metres, so that'll give you a reference point. And you've got a a 330 kV substation in amongst those. and, And to the left, there are a total of nine residents that will look upon the substation alone the fire risk is a real issue here uh, our prevailing winds in the summer will be nor nor westerlies mm. and um, on when the pasture grows and it's drying off it'll be a real tinderbox our concern too is not just not just the fires there but if you look to the east that is a uh, the start of um, heavily eucalypt forest that runs across to the Bungonia National Park. If it gets in there, if a fire gets in there, it really will only stop when it gets to the ocean. This one here, they're saying it's going to last for 35 years. That's what they're proposing, but it doesn't matter how long it lasts. It's when they turn it off, what's going to happen. And my concern is that we're going to be left with a toxic waste dump beside us because the incentive at the moment is for the last company that holds uh, the solar factory, they will switch it off, go bust and walk away. Uh, There is no bond or, uh, like in the mining industry, there's a security bond now to new mines and they are required before approval to put up front a significant bond for rehabilitation and remediation. Um, these guys say, Oh, we'll comply with whatever the laws are at the time, but it's worthless because uh, the developer of this has already sold or is selling five of its developments. BP have got five of its solar farms in New South Wales and Queensland on the market at the moment. So, who's going to be the company that's going to be responsible for re- rehabilitation? Uh, Here we are, we're able to have seven square kilometres which effectively uh, they're trying to bypass our local government through a significant state development, Uh, which is mad, absolute mad. We are here on the, through our property and leading back into the range to the left, this is a box tree preservation area, Um, so yellow and grey box trees. Are trees of significance, and you can't do anything with those unless you get approval.
0: Unless, unless you're a, unless you BP and you want to build a solar farm. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: well, yes, I might laugh, but yes, it's, uh, it seems to be uh, a little bit um, one rule for them and one rule for us. <laughs> this, the whole Gundari Plains is the bottom of a basin, and so you've got people. Um, who will be looking over it. Also we're close to relatively close to Goulburn and typical of regional cities there's a hinterland of smaller developments. We've got a number of um, residential rural blocks near here and it's part of the transition when people get out of the cities they come to places like Goulburn and buy some acres and they'll, you know, buy 50 or 100 acre blocks. Mm. And that's increasingly happening here.
0: What did you think about solar energy before this happened? Did you think it was a good thing?
2: I've got a science background and I had a look at it and I've questioned it and for some time I questioned whether we would, you know, get enough sunlight here in Goulburn to run solar. And um, so we put a uh, solar unit on one of our big sheds and we feed that into the house. Um, And it's great. On sunny days, it's good. We can run, the wife can run the washing machine and the dishwasher all at once, and it costs us nothing for the power. Uh, Any power we put back into the grid at the moment, we get three cents, Um, whereas we're charged 47 cents per kilowatt hour uh, to take it from the grid. Um, that's all very fine while the sun's shining, but we here had here at the... Um, oh, I think it was uh, 10 days through August, uh, we had cloudy, very overcast weather, and our solar panels on the shed hardly ticked over. Mm. Mm. And, you know, Goulburn, according to Bureau of Meteorology, bomb. Uh, they their data, which they no longer, I think, record, but up until 2010, there's 35 years of data which shows Goulburn has 88.4 days a year that are clear. So that's 25% of a year when you have open skies to let the sun in. Mm. That's right.
0: Whereas there are parts of the country where you'd get much better than that.
2: Oh, well, typically if you go out in western New South Wales, it's double that. Mm. You'll get 160 to 180 clear days a year. Mm. Um, But again, you will have periods when the solar panels hardly tick over. Mm. And um, so that was an interesting exercise. It cost me a little bit of dough to put them on there. I don't Mm -hmm. know whether I'll ever get my money back. Um, but um, I thought that's the way to really find out about these things.
0: This is uh, beautiful farming land right now. Sheep grazing territory. Uh, Lovely and this time in the morning it's just absolutely gorgeous. You might ask why on earth? Why on earth would you think about putting A solar plant just here, 740,000 solar panels, supposedly to produce 400 megawatts of electricity, but of course we treat those figures with a, a grain of thought. Why here? Well, it's all down to one thing, power lines. The solar farms and the wind turbines follow the power lines.
3: We have many small bird species, we have at least five vulnerable bird species that we've seen we have at least four wedge-tailed eagles that hunt, currently hunt over the solar farm and get a lot of food from it including the lambs of the current owner they're the most beautiful birds and they will come down very low where you're walking and, and just they fly so fast and they are magnificent they have a nine foot wingspan and they're just magnificent to watch, you can stand there and watch them forever and ever.
0: It's a wonderful place to live, isn't it, really, surrounded by that?
3: We love it and we look after it and all the people we know that are involved or affected by this proposal love their places, have planted many trees, know exactly what animals, what birds they've got on their land and they enjoy them.
0: So around here, uh, just south of Goulburn, there, there are dozens of households double dozens of people who will be adversely affected by this right?
3: There are over 65 fam- uh, families that are affected their families not individuals and BP have acknowledged that in their scoping report and there are another 30 who live a little bit further away but because of the nature of the country here which is hilly not flat people don't seem to realise it goes from 630 metres down at the Gundari Creek up to over 700 metres the other 30 people will also have a magnificent view of this facility if it goes ahead.
0: And out of those, are any of them in favour?
3: No, not that we've heard. Not that we've heard. We've got, you know, people are just devastated by this. They can't believe that a foreign company can come into this country, take our subsidies and do this to the people. They just can't believe it.
0: But it's not just you, is it? I mean, if it was just this one place, you might say, well, it's just a few people. But there, there are hundreds, probably thousands of people up and down the East Coast of Australia in exactly the same position as you are, suffering exactly the same stress and anxiety because they're going to put a solar farm, a wind turbines, or they're going to put transmission lines through their properties or nearby.
3: Well, my heart bleeds for those people because I know exactly what they are going through. And when we finish this fight, whether we win or not, I am going to spend the rest of my life helping those people because I think it is an absolute disgrace country But it is country people, regional people who are being affected by this the city people aren't, asked, aren't being asked to bear the burden of this, it's the country people. And country people we've discovered are very special <clears throat> very special
0: And it's the industrialisation of what was countryside
3: Well this is prime agricultural land here they grow very good Angus cattle I hate to say it, but the solar farm owner well, the solar farm landowner has very good Angus cattle, reasonably good sheep. Um, the previous owners of the farm grew oats and um, baled, uh, had, used to sell bales of oats. So it is very good. And it's very good fat lamb country too. So we're going to be losing 600, 1,650 acres of, of good grazing country.
0: But if they did that for any other use, there would be a massive inquiry, wouldn't there? I mean, if they wanted to build seven square kilometres of housing on the edge of Goulburn, there would be a massive inquiry. But with this, it seems that they can just pretty much get that through pretty easily because everybody is so keen on renewable energy.
3: Well I, don't, well, I don't think everybody is keen on renewable energy. I just think it's certain television stations and pa- papers that push this renewable energy and make you feel guilty. Um, if, you, if you if you say you don't approve And you don't agree that it's going to provide the benefits That it is set to provide mm. But there, there would be There'd be a real stink Because um, I just can't I can't think of any other Project or business That will allow you to go in And absolutely strip 1,650 acres of pasture Cut down the trees there That are, are the few trees that have survived The very harsh Goulburn um, Winters and another thing is the Bureau of Meteorology has stated that Goulburn has an average of 88.5 clear days a year. So I don't think BP will be generating much. And they have, obviously they have not come out and had a look at it because the, we've asked the um, Director of light source BP Adam Pegg to come out. He has refused to come out. He's just too busy. We were told he was too busy. We've spoken, we've written to Frederick Bowdry, the head of BP. He hasn't even bothered replying. And I don't think anybody that can, senior has come out to look at this land. We, we've, we've been sent out.
0: So they're going to spend half a billion dollars on this project and they're telling you they can't, they're too busy to come and see you.
3: That's right, they're just too busy. They do, They keep telling us how they're working with the community and they're discussing things with the community. Well, that is absolute rubbish. They're not. They can't even, Adam Peig cannot even get off his backside and travel from Sydney to come and talk to us. You,
0: they tell you this all the time. They read their brochures, yes, we're working with the local community.
3: Well, they're not. They're not. They had, one of their initial meetings was at um, Bungonia, which is about 20 kilometres from Goulburn, and it's nowhere near the solar factory. And we went, we went to it. And they, their stand was hidden behind the other stands. Very few people went to that market. They're just ticking boxes. That's what they're doing.
0: So what do you think about the company's behaviour?
3: I think it is disgraceful. And I do not understand how we allow foreign companies to come in here, take our subsidies and ruin our land. I mean, I'd like to know how many Australian companies are building solar farms. And another thing, BP, in, with their Wellington solar farm used mainly Section 457 visa workers, brought them in from overseas. Now, they lied right at the very beginning and told us there would be 400 jobs for Goulburn people. That was an absolute lie. And then in their scoping report, they admitted there would be a um, a maximum of 85 jobs for Goulburn people for a maximum of two years. And then after that, there are only one or two people that sit on the solar farm just to keep an eye on things. So that was a deliberate lie to get... The vulnerable greenies in Goulburn on side, but then they had to retract the lie in their scoping report, which was sent to the government.
0: H- have you had any any support from the green groups like Greenpeace and Lock the Gate, for instance? They're supposed to look after farmland. That's what they were set up to do. Any res- are they interested in this?
3: No, we don't know it. They're not, and our. Suppose Green Group in Goulburn, one of its members stole stole some of our signs and twice and um, was actually caught the second time on CCTV camera. Uh, we went to the police and after discussion with a very nice police officer, he persuaded us not to prosecute. But we do have another five and a half years to prosecute if we want to.
0: Well, this is somebody who claims to be want to save the planet. Yeah. And and you're doing exactly that here. You're preserving the the, the the wonderful natural amenity you've got here, and and they're trying to stop you. They they actually want this to go ahead.
3: They think we have no right to protect our homes and the environment that we live in. They think we have no right to do that. And another, we have another very special sign that mentions BP. And two of those were stolen from the same place but then we have a very good handyman who wired the third one very very tightly and so it's got hard tensile fencing wire on it but i just that's another thing why i would like somebody from that group and they know who i'll be talking about who i'm talking about i would like them to tell me why we cannot protect our homes
0: now what about compensation
3: when first contacted us, they said they hadn't budgeted for compensation. Now they're suggesting that we might like some solar systems, that that would be adequate compensation for losing 36 to 50% of the value of our places, which so in they're going to sit
0: 760,000 of those things out there and, and they want to compensate you by giving you more?
3: Yep. Yep. But most of us already have solar systems on our houses, so that didn't go down well with one particular resident who yeah. told them very succinctly what they can do with their solar panels.
0: Yeah. But what gets me about this is, is well, it's just the start. So Chris Bowen tells us he wants 22,000 solar panels installed every day until 2030. Well, this, this, you're going to take care of about a month's worth here. This, this will be like a month's <laughs> worth of solar panels. He's going to have to do it 12 of these things every, a year, 12 solar industrial shapes this size a year.
3: I think Chris Bowen should start walking around the country and go and have a look at what they do to the land when they install solar panels. They have to drill, they use pile drivers, they use excavators, they have to, um, they pour tons of concrete to put the um, legs on. He should go and have, He's. he doesn't live in the real world if he thinks he's going to, how many, 20,000 a day?
0: 22,000 a day. Is he oh, coming? he's
3: living in La La Land. 22,000 a day. <laughs> and where are the workers coming from? Where are the workers going to live? That's another thing. We have such a low um, rental availability in Goulburn. Where are these 400 workers going to live? Are they going to take over the rental properties that the people in Goulburn are desperate for? Uh,
0: he says that the winds and the sun are free and there's abundant quantities. we never run out. But he's forgetting something, isn't there? That every time you put up a, a, a grid scale solar generator, which is what you've got here, you're using a lot of land. Land is scarce.
3: You are. And, and it's just, we have, we have, our last two summers here have been warm, have been um, not warm, haven't been warm. We haven't had summer at all. And he forgets that the climate all around Australia differs. It's variable. Like, as I said, 88.5 clear days on average in Goulburn a year. We have snow. We have massive frosts. And then we have wind farms on the other side of Goulburn that have to be turned off because the wind speed is so high it will damage the, the um, turbines. I just... Do you ever get any hail here? Yes, we do. We're hoping if it goes ahead, we get massive. We're going to seed the clouds so that we can get some massive hailstones.
0: Because there was a massive solar complex in Nebraska that was destroyed. Yes,
3: well, yeah, we're we're ever hopeful. One of the landowners is going to train crows. She reckons crows drop rocks on solar panels. (laughs) And then the rocks heat up and make the glass break. I don't know whether that's correct, but I thought I might try and tame one of the eagles and te- teach it to drop.
0: But that's, the serious side of that is, of course, they, they don't last long. Fifteen years or so is what we're told. And, and then they got they can't recycle them.
3: They can't. You know, they go on about how they're, learnt, they're trying to work out how to recycle. It's going to be an absolute disaster having them sitting there. Where do mm-hmm. they go? And another thing, if you read the EIS for the Wellington solar farm, built by BP, they are allowed to leave wire in the ground and the concrete pads. Mm. We are going to have 167 inverters throughout that 1,600 acres that are as big as a 40-foot container on a concrete pad. So 167 concrete pads that a farmer can't plough around Mm. and re-sow.
0: And because a lot of these are made by Uyghur slave labour, we know that. Mm. Uh, Almost all the panels that come from China have the taint of that upon them because they deliberately use slave labour. Uh, It seems to be on every level this is morally repugnant.
3: Well, it's hypocrisy, isn't it? Absolute, utter hypocrisy and contempt for Australians generally to think that we were. Some of our people have asked BP at one of the drop-in sessions were they going to use panels made by Uyghur slave labour and they said they they couldn't tell us that yet because they obviously don't know where the panels are coming from. This whole project has been so badly run, They just at at any point in time they have not been able to give us assurances as, as to how things would be built, how long it would take to build. One of their managers recently told one of the landowners that the project would take three months to build. Three months. She also told me that Wedgetail eagles thrive under solar farms. And I said, have you ever seen one? She said, yes, yes, I've seen one. And I said, you realise they've got a nine-foot wingspan? Oh. Mm. And then she realised she was talking about hawks and falcons. They have no idea. Mm. They were looking for reptiles. Last October, it was, we had a maximum of nine degrees and it was overcast and their consultants were looking for reptiles.
0: That was my special report from Gundery Plains and thanks very much to Stan and Ann Moore for their help. Last year, the Australian energy market operator handed the government a roadmap, setting out the path to achieve its 2030 clean energy targets. The plan called for the closure of 60% of coal generation by the end of the decade and a massive investment in renewables and transmission lines. A rookie energy minister like Chris Boeing could have been forgiven for taking AEMO at its word. He might have assumed that AEMO's bold plan was empirically grounded, rigorously tested and achievable. AEMO, after all, has a budget of $1 billion a year. Its nine-person board receives a combined, combined fees of more than a million. Yet last week, AEMO blew the whistle on its own roadmap. It would not after all be possible to install the renewable energy capacity needed to rid Australia of fossil fuels as quickly as it promised. AEMO's curiously named Statement of Opportunities warned that the shortage of coal, gas and diesel fuel was a material risk to the reliability of the national energy market. It said, quote, the ongoing availability of coal, gas and distillate fuels and effective management of their supply chains will be critical to the reliability of the national energy market, national electricity market, I should say. In other words, fossil fuels can't be abandoned as quickly as they forecast. Ayumo mo- warned that there would be increasing number of, quote, generator unplanned outage rates or blackouts to you and me. They'd be caused by, quote, recent trends of poor performance amongst some, some generated technologies. I wonder what generated technologies they might be referring to. AEMO's uh, cruel and unusual punishment of the English language couldn't disguise the embarrassing truth. The targets laid out in last year's integrated systems plan cannot be met unless Australians are prepared to live in a country where the supply of electricity can't be assured. The strong pipeline of investment in low-cost renewable energy that AUMA assumed was possible, in fact, they advised the minister was possible 14 months ago, it isn't happening. Regional communities are protesting up and down the east coast of Australia at the industrialisation of the landscape and the heavy-handed energy companies trying to grab their land. What's more, more, the notion that we can replace our baseload energy supply from, of coal with intermittent renewable energy has been exposed as a fallacy. If South Australia's 16 wind farms were running at full capacity, they'd generate 2.1 gigawatts, which is far more energy than the state consumes in the middle of the day. But at lunchtime last Friday, they were producing just 29 megawatts. That's less than 2% of their capacity of wind. A quarter of the state's power was coming from Victoria, where the brown coal power stations were running at full tilt. Another quarter was generated from gas. So if SA is the crash test dummy for our renewable energy future, we're in more than a little trouble. It has the highest concentration of renewable energy of any state, yet it's incapable of generating enough power on a windless day or any night to satisfy its modest demand. It also, incidentally, has the most expensive retail electricity in the country. It's little wonder that AEMO is sounding the alarm about the rising risk of unserved energy, or use, as it likes to call it. Use, U-S-E, says AEMO, represents energy that can't be supplied to consumers when demand exceeds supply. Use, in plain English, is useless. It can cause, quote, involuntary load shedding, which is another long-winded way of saying blackouts. Which is strange since AEMO was telling us 14 months ago that its roadmap from coal had been developed with the help of 1,500 stakeholders at 31 forums and webinars backed by 198 written submissions. There had been, quote, continuous dialogue on every aspect and exhaustive confrontation. Feedback had confirmed, quote, the ISP's direction and our testing was rigorous. Yet, uh, yes, a year on, it seems they didn't ask the obvious question. The ISP may be, as they say, the most robust whole-of-system plan available. But was there ever a conceivable chance that it would actually keep the lights on? If female voters under 35 had their way at the last federal election, the coalition would have been reduced to a tiny rump and the Greens would be the official opposition, if not the government. The coalition fared little better amongst young men where their share of the primary vote was less than a quarter. The Liberal Party has less than three years, in other words, to become fluent in millennial if it wants to get back in office. Conservatives must learn to connect with the hopes, aspirations and frustrations of those for whom the glorious years of the Howard Government are a childhood memory at best. My colleague Freya Leach at the Menzies Research Centre is a Conservative member of Gen Z. She's recently been appointed as the head of youth policy, uh, where she'll be spearheading the MRC's efforts to win back younger voters. The program was launched last week in an event in Sydney where Freya was joined in conversation by former Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson.
1: So I
4: would like to begin, Freya, by asking you this question. Do you think the dividing line for young people is best understood as left versus right, or those who trust their feelings versus those who think through and are interested in the evidence and the arguments. Mm.
5: That's a great point. I think it's probably the latter. And I would also add, I think the dividing line is between those who have a sense of meaning beyond themselves and those who search for it in, in politics and, and in social issues. Uh, and I think that's that's pretty critical. There are a lot of young people and lots of my friends. We are a generation that haven't, lots of people, haven't grown up going to church. They don't have a deep connection with their family. They're more atomized, We don't have a community connection. We're more likely to move around. And I think all of those things erode a sense of meaning that young people maybe used to have, but they certainly don't now. And then when you're facing such a lack of meaning and how do you form an identity? And so then when things like climate change come along or progressive social issues, those things can act as a substitute for that that meaning that we're all craving. And I think that's happened a lot. And, and in the face of that, it's sort of all reduced to emotions because it doesn't make sense to define yourself in terms of climate change or your sexuality or your gender, yet people do. So it has to be driven by emotion. So, yeah, I'd say yes, the latter.
4: <laughs> the, uh, the, the great commentator Ayanne Hersey-Ali, <coughs> married to Neil Ferguson, uh, many of you all know of her, She wrote that we're in danger of turning our democracy into an emocracy where we feel everything Mm. and don't think anything through. But there's a sense in which I think people like me have been too quick to argue what I think are the facts anyway in this day and age when facts seem to be only facts if you believe in them Uh, and to mount the rational arguments and what have you. Whereas our political, I think we've understood that in the end, we all do have a moral sense. Mm. I remember a speaker once saying, don't forget, everyone has a strong moral sense. If you doubt that, uh, you know, go and have dinner with the mafia boss and take his mm. silver and see what happens. Yeah. We do. Now, the Labor Party in particular to be very good at beginning every pronouncement with a moral statement or a call to our feelings before they go on to the argument.
5: Mm. Do you think
4: we could learn from that?
5: Definitely. If you look at the language that Chris Minns uses here or Albo uses at a federal level, particularly Albo, and with things around the voice, it's all appealing to your emotions, but it's all appealing as well to these deeply held moral convictions. And, you know, Labor talks about fairness. We, We want fairness. We want to right past wrongs. Those are not necessarily bad things, but the way they then apply that and the arguments that they then add on to that, that's what's bad. And it means that people just get so used to thinking in terms of emotions. When you try to offer facts, it's like, what? Like we see this on social media all the time. It's not a fact based argument, even with things around issues like energy policy. It's all about emotions. Climate change has become a social issue. It's become a matter of equity, as they all love to talk about. And and we've lost the ability to think critically about things and actually detach emotions a hundred percent.
4: Do you think one of the skills we lack then is to, if you like, broaden people's moral palate? What do I mean by that? If a person says to me over a dinner table conversation, is are always dangerous when you get on to climate, that it's the greatest moral challenge if we face and mm-hmm. all the way, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Is there the opportunity to be faster and fleeter of foot in putting up an alternative moral dilemma? So for example, um, one of my favourites, because I'm deeply invested in agriculture and agricultural research, is that staggeringly, uh, over the last 50 years, we got to the point where uh, we're now feeding 5 billion mouths a day, every, uh, every day than we used to do. Mm.
5: It's a
4: staggering performance. We're always talking the West down, but that's one of our great achievements because we've basically spearheaded all of that, our know-how, our export of compassion, if you like. Um, But that's a moral dilemma because Mm. it's dependent on affordable energy, available and affordable energy and fertilizer.
2: Mm.
4: Put up an alternative moral uh, dilemma and see if you can't get a broader debate. going. Is that Mm. a thing that you think we, we ought to be better at?
5: The problem is if you base your political strategy on pragmatism and managerialism, then you can't do that. And I think as liberals, we've gotten into the habit of always, basically we've just forgotten the values that we actually stand for. And I think part of the reason we've done that is because we're actually right. We're right about how the economy works. We're right that small government is good. Lower taxes are better. That's how you create economic growth. And we've become so reliant on the fact that we're right about a lot of this stuff that we've actually forgotten to explain the moral argument behind that. Why are lower taxes good? Why should we inspire people to be aspirational? Why should we protect individual freedoms and liberties. We've forgotten that part because we're so good at managing the economy. And it's what we always talk about, you know, we're good economic managers and that's so true. But we come up against a situation which we have now with young people where they go, okay, that might be true, but I'm being told that you only manage it for the interests of the boomers. And climate change is gonna kill us all. And I can't pay my rent. And then, what do you say to them, right? What, what is the argument against rent cap?s Of course, there's a good economic argument against it, but but there's also this moral argument that we've totally forgotten because we're so good at actually being correct on policy.
4: I know, I know exactly what you're saying. I think it's a real dilemma, and we all need to get our minds around it. Uh, I did a conversation recently with Peter Costello, mm. and we handled it up beautifully. I mean. You know, nothing like reinforcing one another's prejudices. <laughs> it's one of life's most enjoyable activities. You and I should try it one day. <laughs> right? Come to think of it, they, somebody just said that's what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but but he made, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, you know, I said to him, we can't turn economics into a, a discussion about a sweet set of numbers. Mm. It doesn't And he came back with a brilliant retort. And he's very chuffed because it made it into the Australian Financial Review. <laughs> Um, the best youth policy is deficit and debt reduction Mm. so that our children don't have to pay taxes for the things that they're spending money on as well as their parents and grandparents. Mm. Does that sort of note resonate? It's a different approach to uh, completely Mm. saying it's important to understand economics?
5: Mm. I think it does. I think it does. But the challenge is, well, I, I guess I should say if you frame it as fairness, like this is about intergenerational fairness yeah. and and it's unfair for us to burden the next generation because of our excessive spending and short-term political gains but it's also it's also challenging because i think there is a general lack of economic literacy among a lot of young people mm-hmm. a lot of them don't understand how the economy works. It, it sounds really well, bad to you say. May, that- you mean I went to school? Yeah, that's right. They're not being taught the basic things and they're not having these conversations with their parents or grandparents where that knowledge is sort of passed down. And unless you go look for it, the stuff you see on social media would have you believing the exact opposite of that. I mean, I've seen videos that say, oh, isn't it so terrible that the labor budget delivered a surplus that should be going towards more welfare. That's how they're thinking. That is genuinely the line that's out there so even these basic economic truths that we know young people actually quite literally don't and that's why it's so important that we have young people and all people including people like yourself that are out there that are actually setting the story straight and reconvicting a lot of those points because I think there's a sense that we've won the economic debate. People have conceded that, you know, we are good at managing the economy. The Liberals are good. Yes, yes. But young people don't believe that. They actually do not. Mm. They, they, a lot of them are quite alarmingly attracted to socialism. Yeah. Uh, it's really concerning.
4: You made a really important point, and the research backs it up, uh, that traditionally people have drifted back to the centre as they've mm. moved into their 20s. It was the twenty. Uh, you know, uh, got a job, thought about getting married, starting a family, a mortgage, and they drifted back to being interested in good economic policy and what's going to make a difference. Mm. Uh, here's something you might not be aware of: um, the continental Europe is amazingly drifting back towards the right, mm. but the anglosphere is not. Mm. And as you mentioned, young people are drifting further and further left. Yeah, and a lot of it is tied up with a really vexed issue. I'm a boomer. So, you fellow boomers, we've got a problem here. It's There's a lot of you know, name-calling over you boomers have got all the property. But put that aside for a moment, there is a problem, I believe. Being unable to purchase a house, mm. being in a society where 60% of young people now say, and they're not idiots, let's not just say, come on, stop eating less smashed. You know, maybe you don't do know, yeah. need to eat less, but it is a real issue. When I left school, and I know I'm grey and ancient, but um, somebody heard me quick the other day that I was standing in front of the mirror getting ready for bed, you know, and I said to Shirley, oh, Sally, this is depressing. I don't feel any different on the inside, but look at this. Silver (laughs) head. That was the Razor Gang by the gateway. Howard saying, we're going to end the intergenerational theft and five of you are going to clean up the mess, and I was one of the five. No, would you like to help? You will. Uh, But anyways, you know... everything's sagging and it's all sinking south. <laughs> Quick, darling, say something, I need a bit of encouragement. Says, I've been thinking recently, just how terrific your eyesight's remained. <laughs> um, but, but just to delve into there is a question, there's a point here. Um, we know that delayed home ownership, 60% of young people say, we'll never own a home mm. unless we inherit. That yeah. sets up some pretty unhealthy family dynamics for a start. Yeah. But worse than that, you know this is astonishing. We are now in danger of delaying family formation and so interrupting mm-hmm. it that we're going to be dependent upon guest workers. And people are worried about immigration rates at the moment they will never tell you, but it's a lot of it's being driven by the experts in Canberra who are fully aware that we're running out of our own people.
5: Yeah yeah. You know? Yeah. Then,
4: well, I had four kids, and someone in the National Party said, You've obviously given up on signing them up, John, you're going to breed them instead. But, <laughs> um, but you see the, 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 the national parallel, we're not having enough kids for our mm. own future. Mm. So, this family, you must have, I, I just encourage uh, young, young lives to think really long and hard about legitimate policy ex- sort of parameters for mm. addressing this problem. Any thoughts?
5: Mm. Super, super hard. I mean, I probably don't have all the super, answers. going to say super, super. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, no, no, it's very, very difficult. And I think as well, the other dynamic in all of that is there is a very we, – we recently did a podcast with Jacinta Price talking about The Voice, which will be released soon. And uh, one of the questions I asked her was, should young people feel the level of guilt – for our culture and our country's existence that they do because my generation like we actually feel guilty there is a deep sense that our country is unjust it is corrupted there is the original sin of australia which was our treatment of aboriginal people and since then, you know, it's, it's all bad. And, and now, you know, we're, we're part of that system and it's really all terrible. And I think that same pessimism bleeds into things like climate change. There's a sense that, you know, this is, it's all doom and gloom and innovation can't get us out of this. And, and, and there's, there's no hope here. And then the breakdown of, of meaning and, and any sense of anything beyond ourselves. And so not only do young people feel as though financially they could never possibly afford to have a family, but actually, should I even have a family? Is it actually responsible of me to bring children into this broken world? And the fact that that's even a question that young people, that I've had my friends talking about, celebrities, you know, Meghan Markle and Harry saying that they'll only have one kid because it's irresponsible to bring multiple into the world, it's it's shocking. But that is genuinely how a lot of young people are thinking. So you've got the economic side of it, and I think simple answers are we need to build more houses for a start and we need people to understand that they can own a home and we need to take actions to get governments out of the way. But then the moral side of it is young people feel like maybe it's actually not right for me to have children in this world. And if you go back to Menzies' Forgotten People speech, he talks about three homes, the home material, the home human and the home spiritual. And when those three homes come together, that is how you form a sober society that is healthy and functions well. Home material, 60, 70% of young people believe they'll never be able to own their own home. Home human, they don't want to have children, they're not getting married. We're in this, we're in this culture of serial monogamy where you have one partner every three years. Uh, and then home spiritual, there's nothing spiritual. Maybe it's like new agey or, you know, we, we find our spiritual meaning in solving progressive social issues. But that is the extent of it. And so when you think about how those three homes, we've been dislocated from, from all three. As, as, as a young generation. And I'm sure every generation has had their challenges, but this is the particular moment we're in right now. And and I think that it's having pretty pretty significant impacts. And and that's why suicide is the leading cause of death for young people in our country.
4: I'd just like to pick up on something you said there because I think my encapsulation of the importance and the profundity of what you said is none of us can live long without hope.
5: Mm.
4: We need hope. We need to believe there's a tomorrow and we have a place in it and an interest in it. And we need to believe in our neighbour so that we'll fight for them too. So, I think my question uh, to take this home would be, you are a hopeful person. Mm. I'm sure you're inspiring the rest of us to hope. Are you confident you can keep your hope alive? through the ups and downs of life.
5: Well, I'm sure I've just made you all a bit more depressed, actually.
4: <laughs>
2: um,
5: but but, but no, that's right. I am hopeful because I believe that the values that we stand for as a party are true and are real and we can be free and young people can be aspirational. And I think in terms of how we can, I can, you know, stick at it through the ups and downs. Well, it goes back to the conviction and the courage that you were talking about. If we believe that this is really true and this is really what is going to make sure that the, the next generation of Australians, my, my peers, my friends, are a flourishing human beings that have a faith in our nation and want to contribute rather than just take, well, then we need to stay at it. It's actually a responsibility because, and as you've talked about in podcasts, we actually need heroes. We need people that want and are willing to lead the charge. And I feel a very deep sense of responsibility to do everything that I can for my generation, because there are so many people out there that have been absolutely captured by the ideology of the left, they don't have any hope, they haven't heard our message, they don't understand that there is hope for them in a country where they can build a life for themselves because they've been told that that's just not possible. And so for me, it's actually a sense of responsibility and duty to stick at it. And I think when you feel that sense of responsibility, you know, things, things might happen, might be difficult. And I've been, there have been memes about me online and, you know, you said rants, this anonymous Facebook page where people can post anything they want. You know, there's been borderline defamation, actually quite actual defamation on there. Um, but it's all part of it. And, you know, you're probably saying something right when all the socialists hate you. (laughs) So, so we just have to, it's, it's not, it's not a luxury. Do I want to, or do I not? It's, It's actually a responsibility. And to all the young people in the room, it's a responsibility for all of us to go out and do the little bit we can. Because while technology has created a lot of challenges, it's also created a lot of opportunities. Never before would some random person like myself be able to reach a million young people. That's just unthinkable. But at this point in history, we can. So there is a path out, and we know the things we stand for are true. We know that there are these universal values and and facts about human nature and the stuff that Robert Menzies talked about still resonates with people today. It's just that a lot of young people haven't even heard it or they've been captured by anti-liberal ideas but we know that they're true and we know that they work and so it's a responsibility for us all to go out and actually make the case and stick at it even when it's hard.
4: All fogies like me must recognise the importance of social media mm. and how to use it. It is so, so important to the future. Uh, Jordan Peterson said to me a while ago, you will never win a mainstream argument in the mainstream press anymore mm. if you don't have a proper online presence and capacity yeah. to uh, engage people with high quality content. I think that's important and you can do it. Uh, your results are fantastic. Uh, We are all challenged by Friendly Geordie's numbers, but, hey, I've got four times the subscribers that Kevin Rudd's got. (laughs) (laughs) I've challenged Freya to maintain the hope, okay? My turn now to challenge you. You're all here, I assume, because you want to support what David and Menzies are doing with their... Young Leaders Programme. I want to know that everyone in this room with the capacity to help, uh, I don't like the word mentoring, it sounds kind of pompous, but be a sounding board, be a friend, be there when it all gets to you on social media, you young people, whatever, and say, well, you know, our version of being cancelled looked like this and it was horrible, so I can understand. That's important. Um, But look, let's face it. The world needs resources as well, uh, and you're going to need a lot of them, and we need to invest heavily in our country's future, which just happens to be you young people. Mm-hmm. So Freya, a big round of applause thank to you, you, and thank you for your
0: That was former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson with Freya Leach from the Menzies Research Centre and I suspect we'll be seeing a lot more of Freya. If you want to find out uh, more about the youth policy work that she's working on and and watch more of that that event, there are speeches from both John Anderson and Freya, just go to the Menzies Research Centre website. That's menziesrc.org. That's an easy one, isn't it? Short. menziesrc.org, the RC, by the way. Stanza Research Centre. And uh, that's just about it for this evening. Thanks to Freya and all the team at the Menzies Research Centre for, the, for their help this week. Thanks to the team here at ADH TV and thanks to the good people of Gundry Plains. We wish you all the best in your fight. Thank you and good night.